Hey everybody, I am Eric Trexler. You are watching Mass Office Hours, or maybe you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts after the fact, but tonight we are live on YouTube as always, and I'm joined by Lauren Colenzo Semple. Lauren, how you doing? Happy to be here. Awesome. Glad to have you. Um, folks, if you're watching on YouTube right now, you know the drill. You've done this before, I assume. Uh, first of all, make sure you hit the like button. We've got more viewers than likes, and that's always a problem uh, in my book. So like, rate, subscribe, review. If you want to support the show, tell a friend, send them a link to our YouTube, our Spotify, our Apple podcast page. Uh, if you want to submit questions, we've got a link in the description of this episode where you can submit questions for us to a- uh, to answer in a future episode. Um, yeah, but if you really want to support us, the best way to do that is to subscribe on YouTube here and to join us live, to join in on the fun. And of course, if you love the kind of stuff we talk about in Mass Office Hours, then you're definitely going to love the Mass Research Review. Uh, we publish that every single month on the first of the month, never, ever, ever late in our seven-year history, and we cover the newest and most interesting and most useful studies related to health and fitness and nutrition and everything in between. Um, All right, so Lauren, at some point in this episode, I need to talk about caffeine, but I want to start out while you're here, leaning on your expertise, we have a couple questions from people who specifically wanted answers from you, okay? So... I want to start out with this one here by Marusa. Now, uh, Marusa says she's a regular listener of the podcast, and she has a question about Dr. Stacey Sims. Um, And I'm not super familiar with Stacey Sims, but it looks like she's published some research, uh, you know, in some of the journals that we frequent. Um, Now, the listener says she's perimenopausal, and she heard on The Proof Podcast, which is a good podcast, that uh, women in that perimenopausal age range uh, shouldn't do, you know, basically steady-state cardio, but should only do resistance training and high-intensity interval training. Um, So the question is, uh, is that a claim that uh, perimenopausal women should be adhering to? Where does uh, steady-state cardio fit into the mix, if it fits at all? I am familiar with with some of the the claims that Stacy Sims has made. I know she has a couple books and a TED talk, and uh, is is trying to sort of shed light on exercise recommendations for the the peri or post menopausal woman. Uh, I think one of the the biggest things we need to distinguish here is the potential mechanism for the effect of a hormone or lack thereof and its actual physiological implication and so i've I've talked about this before in the context of the menstrual cycle based training and there is some mechanistic research to indicate in animal models that the absence of the ovarian hormones particularly the estrogens is potentially detrimental for muscle growth or for the maintenance of muscle mass. But that has been really extrapolated and, and in my view, sort of inappropriately interpreted uh, and applied to make exercise recommendations. And I, I believe that those recommendations are probably overblown both for the premenopausal and for the peri or postmenopausal woman. Um, 
the the argument that that I believe Stacey Sims has made is that given a potential effect of estrogen on myosin function and satellite cells, which could affect muscle protein synthesis, uh, the ability to regenerate and repair muscle, um, that you would need to change your exercise routine in order to promote muscle hypertrophy. I think we are aligned in that she thinks muscle is important and that she thinks resistance training is important. Where I think we diverge is this point of view that only high intensity training or high load training is appropriate for the peri or postmenopausal woman. Uh, I don't believe there's sufficient evidence to back that up. Uh, and what we see from the hypertrophy and, and strength research in general is that we can get results from a wide range of loads, particularly when you know, we are close enough to failure. So meaning it's a sufficient stimulus on the muscle. And uh, I, so I don't believe there is sufficient evidence to suggest that just because you are peri or postmenopausal and your ovarian hormone levels are starting to decline, that you would need to just focus your your rep range or, or your loading at a uh, you know under six reps or or, or something similar. Uh, similarly, when we look at something like a, a high intensity high intensity interval training as opposed to steady state cardio, uh, I think again across the board in a variety of populations in both sexes, we see that these are are viable for promoting certain adaptations but there isn't anything to suggest that just because you are experiencing those hormonal changes that you should feel locked in to adjusting your exercise program accordingly uh it's really important to point out the fact that people who are entering the, this realm and, and starting to, to train and focus on their health and promote changes in body composition uh, should should develop that and adopt those habits with a range of, of flexibility. So the, the the main issue that I take with these kinds of recommendations, they feel like it's a, it's a bit overcomplicated and it, it lacks that flexibility when we know that physical activity in general, resistance training in general, whether it's higher loads, lower loads, whether it's steady state cardio, whether it's high intensity cardio, a lot of that, in my view, should be tailored to the preference of the individual um, and you know, what what is within their abilities and how they can sustain that and, and maintain a consistent program over time. Yeah. Yeah. When, when I saw this question, I, I kind of dug a little bit into like, you know, what the claims are, where they come from. And you know, with with any kind of claim related to fitness, there there's often, you know, a little grain of truth and then a little bit of extrapolation and then, you know, context of the claim is always important, right? So I, I've even come across places on, on the internet where someone says, oh yeah, Eric Trexler said this. And I'm like, I don't think I did. Or if I did, like you're, it was really in a much different context than it's being discussed now. So um, whenever we get questions where it's like, oh, so-and-so said this on the internet, I always say, okay, well, let's just look at that claim as it's being presented 
and, you know, always leave that little bit of um, benefit of the doubt that maybe there are some contextual factors that that kind of influence when and where the claim was made. But I, I will say that, um, just broadly speaking, I never like to exclude uh, viable forms of exercise from recommendations, right? Like, it, I would never look at someone who's, you know, a 53-year-old perimenopausal woman and she says, good news, I'm, you know, jogging three days a week, and I spit out my water and say, stop that right now. What are you doing, right? Um, when you think about all the benefits that are to be had from exercise in a variety of modalities, I think first and foremost, you look at what right now is the leading cause of death for Americans. It's it's something that falls under the cardiovascular disease umbrella, and that's true for men, and it's also true for women. And so, uh, the last thing you're going to catch me doing is discouraging someone from doing, you know, aerobic steady state exercise if that's kind of what fits their preference for getting exercise in. Now, if you hate steady state cardio and you just absolutely don't want to do it, we can get around that, right? We can do a, a combination of resistance training and some interval training, and then maybe we throw some, you know, non-exercise physical activity in there, you know, leisurely walking, right? So, to be healthy does not require that one jogs on a treadmill like a hamster. I actually quite like treadmills, but I know a lot of people dread them. So it's not that you have to do steady state cardio at any particular age range, but it is a, a tremendously efficient form of exercise for cardiovascular health. Uh, you know, if, if you're talking about like moderate intensity, steady state cardio, uh, the cardiovascular adaptations that we see from that are so tremendously protective uh, and of course, there's carryover into uh, things that have nothing to do with cardiovascular health or just barely related. You know, you really have to strain to make a connection. But, um, you know, we've got, you know, some data I'm looking at right now from an exercise intervention where we're seeing people who have, you know, when they increase their exercise, they have lower anxiety scores, lower depression scores, lower burnout scores. And that's all on top of, you know, improving various components of metabolic syndrome. So all of that is to say, if you are a perimenopausal woman or any human being, and you really enjoy steady state cardio, and someone's telling you to, to stay away from it, um, take that recommendation with a grain of salt and run it through, you know, just like the, the person asking this question did, run it by a few people that you trust in the field and, and get a second and a third and a fourth opinion. Uh, because, you know, it's it's really hard. I mean, the the health benefits of cardio that's a hard record to try to doubt right i mean it, it's a very very um health promoting activity to engage in uh regardless of your menopausal status so we are on the same page one and it's it's interesting you, you mentioned that it was it was kind of overcomplicated but it's also oversimplified at the same time meg you see a lot of times with with fitness recommendations it's oversimplified recommendations that are based on an overcomplicated rationale you know, and I think this is one of those examples where somehow, you know, low to moderate intensity, intensity, steady state cardio is off the menu because of these really complicated kind of uh, explanations. Now, yeah, while we're on the, the, sure, the yeah. peri postmenopausal uh, topic, I, I'll say the other thing that I've heard that I think is really worth addressing is the, from the nutritional aspect, because you you hear often that women in this population start to gain body fat, um, sometimes focus in the abdominal area, sometimes it's visceral fat. Uh, and 
I've, I've heard recommendations that a calorie deficit isn't important and that as long as you're adhering to, to these types of, of high intensity exercise recommendations, that that doesn't matter or you just need to increase your protein intake or or and or you just need to increase your pre-workout protein intake. And I think we need to be really careful about making those those sorts of recommendations because there's so much evidence to to suggest that a calorie deficit works. Yes, protein is important, but it's not going to be, uh, promote changes in body composition without a deficit. And just because you are peri or, or premenopausal and you are experiencing changes in hormones doesn't mean that the the rules that are kind of established for changing your body composition wouldn't apply to you once you're in that stage of life. And so I think we need to really lean on the the larger body of evidence. And certainly there's no clinical trial to point to that shows this group of peri or postmenopausal women doing this type of exercise resulted in or or implementing this particular nutritional intervention um, resulted in a, in a different meaningful body composition outcome than another group applying a, a, a different load or, or rep scheme or a, a different level of, of um, protein intake. So uh, it, it's it's again really important to yeah, dive into the the mechanism, the potential rationale, but then look to is it actually panning out when we look at human trials? Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's interesting that you you brought up inflammation and caloric deficits. That's kind of been something. Inflammation's been on my mind a lot because uh, it, my research is kind of dragging me in that direction. Um, inflammation is very complicated, but it's also, in terms of practical application, pretty simple. Um, like, you know, in our lab, we were testing out some assays. I, uh, courageously donated some blood and my CRP levels, uh, probably the most common biomarker of inflammation were a little bit higher than I would like. Um, and so it got me thinking, you know, what do you do when your inflammation's a bit higher than you like? Right. And so of course there's the basic stuff, eat, you know, fruits and vegetables. They tend to have an anti-inflammatory effect, uh, when they're in the diet. Um, but one of the things you can do, like we, we always think about how caloric restriction is this, you know, caloric restriction has a great record in terms of extending lifespan in, in lab animals. Um, and caloric restriction is anti-inflammatory in nature, but we rarely, you know, really think about how that works or why that works. And we know that exercise is really good for us, um, and, and promotes all these different health outcomes and reduces inflammation but we rarely kind of put the pieces together and talk about why that is. Ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, uh, caloric excess is a, a pro-inflammatory state, right? When, when you have excess calories coming in, when you have excess fat storage, you're kind of creating an environment uh, that, that's generally pro-inflammatory. Um, and, and so even if it's just, you know, you're, like for my example, I was carrying a little bit more fat than I usually do in just the slightest caloric surplus, not doing quite as much exercise, you see that this abundance of energy really lends itself to a, a pro-inflammatory state. And one of the reasons that caloric restriction and exercise are, are helpful for, for you know, anti-inflammatory effects is because your body, when you're in a deficit, isn't 
likely to waste energy on a you know a frivolous inflammatory response to just some minor inflammatory insult uh, and so it's really interesting to see how just by modulating long-term and short-term availability of energy through being in a deficit and maybe losing a couple pounds you know I, I i was totally happy with my body fat level in terms of my performance and how i felt and how i looked but you know my my inflammation levels i was like oh i, I should probably uh get get ahead of that get on top of that and so um yeah caloric deficits and just doing a little bit more physical activity they're super underrated for inflammation and the reason you know to kind of tie this all together is that's usually a, a really major um, outcome of concern when we talk about peri and postmenopause. You know, it, it's very common for studies to look at CRP levels, you know, during and after menopause, and you know, a lot of times it is kind of associated with increased visceral fat that that accumulates after menopause, uh, and then you know we see that with that extra visceral fat, increased inflammation and uh, yeah, it's a really interesting uh, physiological state. Um, you could spend a whole career studying menopause and, and the changes that occur there. But at the end of the day, I think the fundamentals like you were highlighting still, they still matter, right? You know, um, so when we talk about these these recommendations uh, as they relate to menopause, you know, I, I was talking about aerobic exercise a lot and aerobic exercise is great, but it's just part of the the overall puzzle, right? So it's having an appropriate level of energy balance relative to your needs. Um, you know, trying to keep body fat in a range that works for you. Um, aerobic exercise is fantastic, but also without question, throwing resistance training in there is very important, especially, you know, peri and postmenopause when you're talking about making sure that you are maintaining uh, physical function, muscle strength and mass, and then ultimately bone, uh, bone mass and bone durability as well. All right, Lauren, I'm going to get back to you with another question, but first I need to talk about caffeine because I, I left the audience with a cliffhanger last episode. Um, last episode, things were not going my way. We were having audio issues. It was not the right time to discuss caffeine, but now we're having a free-flowing conversation and we can do that. So I wrote the cover story for the most recent issue of the Mass Research Review, and it was called The Pros and Cons of Caffeine. And this was my most daring article yet. Um, you know, we've talked about caffeine many times in the Mass Research Review, and I would say that those articles range from glowing to very glowing in terms of how caffeine is framed. You know, we talk about caffeine um, potentially having positive effects on endurance performance, strength performance, power performance, uh, making you feel good in the morning. There's just a lot of benefits. Uh, caffeine generally, uh, or coffee, I should say more specifically, generally correlated with reasonably good health outcomes in low to moderate doses and even into pretty high doses too. So um, yeah, usually when Mass is talking about caffeine, it's very positive. Um, and you know, my bias there is that I've been a heavy caffeine consumer, specifically a heavy coffee consumer, probably for over a decade straight now. Um, it, it's always been, you know, back in the day when I was way too young, I was always slamming the pre-workouts. And I, I basically associated when you're hyper-caffeinated, you're ready to train. Like that's just subjectively what ready to train feels like to me. Um, so yeah, I'm a big caffeine lover, but I, I reviewed a new study by Marcus and colleagues uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, a very prestigious journal. Uh, they don't do a lot of strength and conditioning work. This was focused on uh, 
more broad health outcomes. So uh, what they were looking at here was they had 100 healthy adults and they were looking at the effects of acute caffeine consumption on cardiac arrhythmias, daily step counts, and sleep outcomes. And it was a really cool design. What they did was over this 14-day study period, it was a crossover trial. So participants did seven caffeine days where they had coffee, and then they had seven uh, caffeine avoidance days where they just stayed away from all caffeine. And so basically over this 14-day period, participants would wake up, they'd check their phone, they got a text, and it would say, hey, good news, caffeine day. Or it would say, hey, no caffeine today. So they would kind of go back and forth, and they would never have two of the same more than two of the same day in a row. So they would never have three days in a row with caffeine, nor would they ever have three days in a row with with no caffeine. So um, basically, like I said, they're looking at cardiac arrhythmias, step counts, and sleep outcomes. Now, what they found is that uh, participants took more steps on the days that they consumed coffee. Um, it was almost a thousand extra steps. So that that's pretty good, right? So taking, you know, 10,600 instead of 9,600, um, it's nice, you know, a, kind of a subconscious, kind of non-volitional increase in physical activity. However, caffeine also led to less sleep. So it was 36 fewer minutes per night of sleep on average when people were drinking coffee rather than abstaining from caffeine. Uh, and they also found a higher frequency or higher, yeah, higher frequency, I would say, of these cardiac arrhythmias on the days that people consumed coffee. So um, the reason that I kind of got interested in covering this study is, first of all, the effects of caffeine on sleep are something that we we talk about frequently in mass. And one of the things that people often misinterpret, a lot of people think that as long as you're drinking your coffee uh, at least six hours before bed, you're all good. That coffee will be out of your system and you'll sleep like a baby, uh, as if babies sleep well. But uh, that's not really the case, right? So that, that was kind of a misinterpretation. And in my cover story, I talk a little bit about uh, how that initial study got misinterpreted with that six-hour threshold. But more recently, there was a, a meta-regression that basically said, hey, if, if your daily caffeine consumption is over 200 milligrams per day, you probably want to get all your caffeine in like 13 hours before you go to bed if you really want to be safe and make sure that you're not going to have sleep disruption. And so for a lot of people, that's kind of untenable. I mean, that basically means wake up, drink all your coffee for the day, and that's it. You know, you're not really getting that second cup of coffee later in the morning or, you know, even after lunchtime. So um, this this study did not have detailed information about the timing of, of coffee intake, but it did just in a very generic sense indicate that when people are left to their own devices and all they're instructed to do is like, yep, go ahead and have some coffee today. On average, it does lead to a you know a, about half an hour less sleep per night, um, which is you know worth noting. I, I think that's you know a relevant degree of sleep disruption if you're getting a an, you know missing a half hour of sleep uh, per night. Now, there's obviously some uh, some people will push back on that and say, well, maybe I'll adapt to it, maybe I'll habituate, and it's very possible that some habituation does occur. Um, however, you have to take that with the flip side, which is that some habituation is also going to occur with regards to the benefits, you know, that you're drinking coffee presumably for, right? So, um, you know, a lot of times people notice that the wakefulness, the alertness they experience from caffeine, we do kind of habituate and that effect gets smaller over time with continued use. 
And with performance, this is an area where there's a lot of controversy. So there are studies without question that, you know, they'll bring in someone, you know, off the street, a group of people, I should say, and they have them do a performance test, you know, with caffeine, come back later, do a performance test without caffeine and caffeine trials, you know, within that context, people do better during the caffeine trials than they do during the placebo trials, even if they're a regular habitual caffeine user. Um, so some people have used that to indirectly kind of say, well, clearly there's no habituation for performance outcomes because these folks are still performing better on caffeine. However, it's not necessarily that simple. It could be that simple, but it's also possible that we, we really don't have a great understanding of the timeline of how withdrawal from caffeine actually affects physical performance, you know? Even the timeline for just like general symptoms of caffeine withdrawal, you know, if you look it up, people will say, yeah, it's somewhere between two and nine days, you know, is when you're going to experience caffeine withdrawal. That That's a tremendously wide range, in my opinion. And when it comes to physical performance, we really don't know much at all. Um, there have been some studies that looked at it, but but really not, not in a high level of detail. So all of that is to say, it is somewhat possible that when we're seeing habituated caffeine users having a performance benefit from caffeine, it could simply be that during the placebo trial, they're actually having an ergolytic effect, a performance reduction due to caffeine withdrawal, and the caffeine is simply bringing them back to baseline by attenuating those withdrawal symptoms. It, it's entirely possible, but, but something that you can't really say definitively. Um, but what's interesting is that if we really wanted to know if the performance effects of caffeine if we habituate to them, if they kind of diminish over time with repeated use, you'd want to do a study where you actually experimentally give people caffeine, you know, for weeks straight and continuously or, or repeatedly, I should say, measure performance outcomes many times over that period of time. Uh, I'm aware of one such study that did that. It's something that we reviewed in mass uh, years ago. And that study did broadly point to the idea that there is some habituation of the performance effects of caffeine. So all that is to say, I know a lot of folks who really love caffeine, they won't even entertain the idea of, of avoiding caffeine or stopping to consume caffeine or consuming less caffeine because they say, I need these performance benefits and I'm not willing to give them up. And I think you can make an interesting challenge to that premise by saying, well, there is some evidence of habituation. Um, you know, the, the evidence against habituation is very indirect. Um, and another thing that's important to note is when it comes to resistance training outcomes, the only study that I'm aware of that tried to look at pure, like, caffeine alone, seeing if it would really meaningfully impact uh, resistance training adaptations over time when it's consumed daily before workouts or, you know, before every workout several times a week, um, caffeine really did not seem to enhance training adaptations over time. You know, it's very intuitive to think if something can in improve my performance today in the gym, surely I can capitalize on that every workout and over time that will materialize with better strength gains or, or muscle growth over time. Um, but so far, the very, very, very limited evidence for caffeine uh, suggests that perhaps that's not the case and, and perhaps uh, chronic uh, training adaptations aren't really meaningfully impacted by caffeine. Now, the other thing I want to note is that um, when they looked at, one thing they looked at in the study was those cardiac arrhythmias, and they did find that arrhythmias were more frequent 
when people consumed coffee versus avoiding caffeine entirely. Um, I don't want to be an alarmist about that because these uh, arrhythmias, while they did happen and exist, uh, these are not what you would call a clinically notable outcome uh, in terms like, for example, they observed uh, the uh, the mean value here, the daily mean number during the caffeine days for premature ventricular contractions was 154. Um it's not like they had 154 instances of people rushing to the hospital, right? These are, generally speaking, benign, um, you know, harmless, uh, slight deviations from a, norther, uh, from a normal heart rhythm. But um, this does become noteworthy if you have an underlying heart condition, right? So, uh, Lauren, I don't know if the news travels all the way up to Canada with this stuff, but have you heard about the Panera Bread stuff? I haven't. Okay, so Panera Bread... All allegedly, I don't want to get on Panera's bad side. We'll let the courts sort this out. But oh, we're going to lose a potential sponsor now. Yeah. So a couple people filed, two different individuals uh, filed separate lawsuits alleging that a caffeinated beverage from Panera Bread, uh, the restaurant chain, uh, led to deaths, uh, to fatal cardiac events. Um, and so they, they had this new drink that was called uh charged lemonade i believe and so it was like a caffeinated lemonade drink and what what's really interesting is these types of stories come up every few years where you hear about you know a teenager who died drinking an energy drink and you read more about the story and they say yeah they had 700 milligrams of caffeine because they drank three of them and you know if you're a caffeine research researcher like me you look at that and you say wait a minute the 700 milligrams it, it's you know, a lot compared to a cup of coffee, but it's not that much. Uh, you know, an acute lethal dose of caffeine is estimated to be over 10,000 milligrams. So why is someone dying from less than a thousand? And so what's really going on there in most of these cases um, is that there's an underlying heart condition where caffeine is kind of exacerbating that issue. So for example, if you're someone with long QT syndrome, and when we say QT, we're talking about the squiggly lines in the EKG or the ECG, uh, but basically the gap between the, the Q wave and the T wave is extra wide for people with long QT syndrome. Well, it seems like caffeine can actually increase that QT interval. And so if you already have a long QT interval, and then you have very high dose caffeine, you might run into a situation where some of these benign arrhythmias actually become, uh, you know, clinically relevant arrhythmias or even, you know, extremely dangerous arrhythmias. So for people with heart conditions, uh, caffeine, you know, should, should always be something that they're talking to their cardiologist about, you know, what kind of range is safe for me based on my specific heart condition. But all of that is to say, looking at the study in its totality, um, it basically indicated that, hey, having plenty of caffeine might cause you to walk around a little bit more. You know, that, that's kind of, uh, even in, in uh, rodents, I've seen some studies where if you give mice caffeine, they walk around more. They, they move around, they get a little bit jittery. Um, so that may be good for getting a little bit more um, non-exercise physical activity, but there was sleep disruption, uh, some notable sleep disruption that was observed. Uh, and they did find, you know, for, for the step count stuff, um, it didn't really matter if you were a slower, fast caffeine metabolizer based on your genes, but they did find um, that the sleep effects were meaningfully impacted by whether or not you were a fast or slow caffeine metabolizer. So 
uh, as you would expect, slow caffeine metabolizers um, had a, a tougher time when it came to sleep. They had much more notable sleep disturbances. And some of the folks who were fast me- uh, caffeine metabolizers, they actually got better sleep when they were uh, consuming coffee. But the catch is uh, the the proportion of folks in this study that were actual fast metabolizers um it, it was only like 10 or 13 people. It was a low number relative to the sample size of 100. So basically what that means is there are some folks out there who are going to perhaps even sleep better on days when they have caffeine, but it's probably not a sizable percentage of the the overall population, which means that you listening from a probability perspective are probably not that person. You could be, but the numbers suggest that you probably aren't going to experience better sleep. You're more likely to experience worse sleep with caffeine, uh, and you might want to be careful about your timing if you wish to attenuate that. So one of the reasons that I wanted to kind of summarize this research is uh, lately, uh, not lately, but recently, I fell ill, Warren, with COVID. Uh, I thought I was going to avoid it. I was so close, but it got me eventually. And I couldn't really drink anything comfortably for a few days because my throat was super sore. So I didn't have any coffee for a few days. And I said, okay, I'm going to ride this out. I'm going to give it a shot. And I haven't had caffeine since. I went totally caffeine free. It's been a couple months now, I think. You can go back in the office hours archives and figure out when I could hardly talk. That was that was when I was sick. Um, but yeah, it, it was. it's really interesting to review this research and then kind of in parallel do this little anecdotal case study on myself or, you know, self-experimentation. Um, you know, what I've found is that while I used to be a caffeine addict and I loved it and would drink it all the time, uh, I actually much prefer how I feel without it. And it had been a long time since I, I went without caffeine. Um, what I have found is that I, I don't get as many headaches as I used to. I used to get headaches if I had too much or too little caffeine in a day. Um, I've also noticed that I'm usually someone who's kind of prone to anxiousness and that has been completely different without having high dose caffeine every day. Um, and my energy level, I think is a lot more stable throughout the day. It's like, I don't reach the like jittery highs, uh, you know, a couple hours after I drink coffee, but I don't have those dips later on. So all that is to say, um, this study, you know, in, in this article, I guess I should say, I kind of summarize many areas of the caffeine research when it comes to, uh, you know, habituation with regards to performance, effects on sleep, the different pros and cons of caffeine intake. And ultimately, the the conclusion that I reach is um, you might want to ask yourself a few questions, um, you know, if you're trying to determine uh, whether or not it might be worthwhile to to cut out caffeine for a little bit and see how you feel. So those questions are, you know, do you feel better when you consume caffeine or does caffeine just help you avoid bad feelings like headaches or drowsiness? In my case, I was drinking caffeine to avoid headaches and drowsiness that were being caused by the caffeine in the first place, uh, which isn't ideal. Another question, are you actually sleeping well enough or is caffeine masking the signs of insufficient sleep? One thing that I found was when I cut caffeine out, I started sleeping an extra like half an hour a night. Um, and I didn't think I was undersleeping. I would wake up without an alarm. Like I thought I was sleeping plenty. And once I got rid of caffeine, I noticed that I was actually undersleeping a little bit, but just chronically covering that up with caffeine. Uh, does caffeine meaningfully improve your performance or have you come to expect poor performance 
when you're not caffeinated. You know, it, some people, I think, they really lean on caffeine as a crutch, and it's more psychological than it is physiological in the gym. Uh, do you have any predispositions like anxiety, slow caffeine metabolism, sleep issues, heart arrhythmias, or family history of heart conditions that may make you question your current level of caffeine consumption? Those are just some questions to think about. Um, I should clarify, there's nothing wrong with caffeine. Um, if you look at the the long-term chronic health data, caffeine is not an unhealthy thing, especially not in the form of coffee or tea. Uh, these are beverages that are associated with generally positive health outcomes. However, caffeine's not for everybody. And I had not taken any time in the last decade to think, am I really sure that caffeine is having a positive effect on my life rather than a neutral or a negative? Um, so it's worth considering. It's worth thinking about if you're someone who falls into habits like myself. And I still love a good cup of coffee. I'm drinking decaf every day. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I think caffeine, my days might be over, Lauren. Might be it. I can't say that I'm on the same page. Yeah. How much caffeine do you have a day, if you had to guess? Uh, I have probably one to like i have a coffee in the morning always and then i might have uh, another beverage that has a small amount of caffeine yeah see the problem with me lauren is that i have a very addictive personality like i i get on something and i push it to the limit um which is not ideal in many cases so for me with caffeine it's a lot easier for me to just say i'll either not have it or i'll have it and if i'm having it like it was not unusual for my daily caffeine intake to drift up upwards of, you know, five, 600 milligrams a day uh, and sometimes higher if I was like really pushing to a deadline. Yeah, so, yeah. My one thing that I'm thinking is for those listeners who might be kind of pre-workout enthusiasts, you almost never find a pre-workout that doesn't contain caffeine. It's sort of one of the um, the standard pieces of of the formulation and um there's something ritualistic about mixing up your pre-workout before you hit the gym and it it's not necessarily about the caffeine uh but perhaps we could consider doing that but having a, a pre-workout formula that doesn't have caffeine you know I, I hear people say the same thing about beta alanine like even though they acknowledge that oh, it's not going to help my performance. I get those tingles and then I'm ready to train. And so there's something to be said for that piece of it that uh, I think is worth addressing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think, um, like I said, I was so used to caffeinating before workouts that I naturally associated a decaffeinated state with being unprepared to train. You know, like I th those two feelings, the, the, the sensation of being caffeinated in my mind was the sensation of being ready to train. And so when you start trying to train without it, 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 it's quite an adjustment. So there's the kind of subjective, you know, like you said, you get the tingly feeling and, and the flush from the niacin and the, you know, the, the caffeinated stuff, you know, that definitely plays a role, I think, psychologically for training preparedness. And like you said, the ritual, I think for me, like the ritual was also a big thing where, um, you know, I'd brew my coffee and, and that was almost like my workout had started, for, you know, because we've initiated that sequence. So, yeah, I think it's interesting to get creative and say like, well, if I really just want to have a ritual that makes me feel like I'm locked in and that, okay, it's time to go to the gym. Um, 
you know, you, you could do a caffeinated pre-workout. Like I said, I, I don't want to be like super anti-caffeine because I think my experience with caffeine is not the norm. I think most people who are not, you know, really addictive personalities, most people who are not having headaches from caffeine, most people are not, you know, prone to anxiousness the way I am. You're probably doing just fine with a normal amount of caffeine. It is no big deal. Um, but I think there are at least a couple people out there like me who might want to, uh, you know, consider how much caffeine you're having and whether or not it's really serving you. And, you know, if you want to mimic that idea of having some kind of pre-workout ritual, a tasty beverage that kind of gets you ready, you, you could go way cheaper than your typical pre-workout supplement that has several, you know, ingredients in there. I mean, you could do citrulline malate with a, like a Mio water enhancer, um, and if you want to put your creatine in there for the day, like go for it. I think that honestly is going to cover at least a couple of your bases for a pre-workout beverage without, you know, getting you hopped up on caffeine and it's going to be super cheap. You know, citrulline malate is cheap. Creatine monohydrate is even cheaper. They're basically giving that stuff away. You can throw beta alanine in there if you want. You know, you can, you can put this kind of thing together for pennies on the dollar relative to uh, your typical pre-workout. But anyway, I think that's enough caffeine talk. I kind of, I, I would encourage people to read the full article because I, I take a really systematic look at kind of what we know about caffeine, what we don't. And and I, I was pretty upfront in the article that the goal of the article was almost like in debate club when you were in like high school and they'd say like, I don't care what you believe, you're on this team for the debate, right? So I've written so many pro-caffeine articles. I, I basically said in this article I'm in debate club and they put me on the anti-caffeine team. So here is the credible evidence-based argument that at least casts doubt on the really glowingly positive reputation that caffeine has. So I, I don't think people will walk away from the article saying, whoa, I need to stop having caffeine today. But I think some folks will, will it will resonate with them and they'll say, actually, I went through some of those questions. I'm thinking maybe I'm, I'm going a little too overboard with the caffeine and I might benefit from from scaling back a little bit. All right, Lauren, uh, one more question that I really wanted to make sure we ask while you're here, and then we'll dive into the live chat, make sure we're, we're giving everybody plenty of attention in there. So the, the last uh, question I had for tonight, um, this one's from Johnny C. Uh, it specifically is calling you out, Lauren. So it says, Lauren, I've heard much talk about heavy aerobic activity reducing periods and even making them disappear. So amenorrhea or oligomenorrhea. Is this due to low energy availability or is it more the amount of stress that the body is going through? Um, so Lauren, uh, wh what do you think there in terms of your answer? And I, I will say, Helms and I just recorded an episode of Iron Culture where we talked about this ad nauseum, went into a lot of depth on it, but they called you out, Lauren, so I'm giving you the floor first. Well, when we refer to energy availability, we're talking about your energy intake and your energy expenditure from exercise relative to your fat-free mass. So there's there's nothing really in there that would say aerobic exercise in and of itself is going to put you in a state of, of low energy availability. And I think it's important to distinguish a state of low energy availability from just being in a calorie deficit and exercising. So in terms of aerobic activity at, at high doses causing or leading to 
amenorrhea or other types of menstrual dysfunction. We do see that, but it's usually in a context of athletes that are performing really high levels of physical activity and are typically at very low levels of body fat and are potentially not fueling that level of activity appropriately such that you end up with a, a variety of of health issues that that come from being in that state particularly chronically you know we see disruptions to the endocrine system the metabolic system the cardiovascular system um your the immune system uh, you're more susceptible to things like falls and fractures um bone mineral density is compromised muscle protein synthesis is compromised so we we know that that true low energy availability is problematic on a, a variety of levels and there's there's nothing to there's no argument there however we we need to be careful about how we're defining low energy availability and what forms or or volumes of exercise we're associating with it because again it's it's sort of a a combination of your your intake your exercise expenditure and that's often linked to body composition absolutely yeah i'm with you um i'm just gonna leave a teaser here and just say folks if you're interested in this question i highly encourage you i beg you listen to the next episode of the Iron Culture podcast. It will be coming out uh, this upcoming Monday. Today is February 7th. I forget what Monday is, um, but this upcoming Monday, uh, Helms and I talk about uh, this giant web of terms, right? So you've got got low energy availability. uh, You've got the female athlete triad. You've got REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport. Uh, You've got exercise hypogonadal male condition uh, for the gentleman out there. You've got overtraining. You've got exercise energy compensation. You've got metabolic adaptation. And then you've just got good old-fashioned stress, whether it's from training or psychogenic factors or lack of sleep. Now, that sounds like a long list of loosely related terms, but the whole point of that podcast episode on Iron Culture is to kind of lay out a Venn diagram of how these different factors overlap, how sometimes a particular symptom could be caused by multiple things on that list. And you really have to work your way through a few questions to figure out what exactly is going on here. Um, and so so that's what's really tricky. Now, if you go back into the like OG, you know, first few studies on low energy availability, when they were first laying the foundation for that literature. Um, that was like the first thing that really started this cascade. They were doing low energy availability research before they were doing female athlete triad, which was before they were doing reds, which was before they were, you know, before they're doing exercise hypogonadal male condition, low energy availability, that research kicked off this whole thing. And the first thing that really alerted them to studying this was female endurance athletes losing their periods or having very irregular menstrual cycles. Um, And so the big question in that literature was, what's happening here? Is it low energy availability most commonly, or is it just the stress of excessive training load? Now, in those studies, they found that 
and they found and concluded that more often than not, low energy availability is often the thing in these athletic populations that seems to be potently kind of driving that amenorrhea. Like they, they couldn't just look at a particular level of exercise and say, oh, that's where, you know, periods stop. But they were able to say, okay, it looks like the folks who are experiencing this more often than not are the folks with very low energy availability. However, having said that, that's not the end of the story, right? There's no question that, I mean, Lauren, you know, you, you're the expert on this, but I'm, I'm fairly certain you can lose your period from just psychogenic stress alone, right? I mean, you could just have really bad stress and, and at least have disruption of your menstrual cycle. Um, so when you combine the physical stress of exercise plus psychogenic stress plus sleep disrupt, I mean, you can w- stress your way to, uh, you know, pretty substantial fluctuations in the endocrine system that can impact the regularity of a menstrual uh, cycle without really needing to have low energy availability be part of the equation. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I think importantly, the the loss of your cycle is a flag that that something's going on that that should be addressed. It's yeah. it's a symptom that that is a sign that uh, especially if you're somebody who typically had a regular cycle, then it, it's certainly something to pay attention to. And I think that in the research we can kind of nitpick about how we define some of these terms or what goes into these equations and how we might improve them. But when we're we're talking about presenting with symptoms and how to focus on on recovering uh, or addressing those or diagnosing an, an issue that that is related to those symptoms, I, I think practically speaking, that's probably more important. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I will admit, Lauren, you might not want to listen to that episode because we got way into the de- the details, deep into the weeds on all these different definitions because you kind of need to if you want to sort out what's really going on, right? So, for example, the, the example I gave was you have a male exerciser with low testosterone. Okay, well, that could be maladaptive, you know, you're, it could be very unfavorable and you're having clinically relevant symptoms. Or it could just be adaptive, right? It's not necessarily a bad thing. So um, if you're noticing symptoms uh, secondary to that low testosterone, you might go one way on the flow chart. But if you are just like healthy and performing well and feeling great, and you just notice that your testosterone is 25% lower than you would have expected, it may just be exercise hypogonadal male condition, which seems to be adaptive, but not maladaptive. Um, And it's also something that we see in populations with high levels of exercise energy compensation. So when we go to like hunter-gatherer groups in South America or Africa, it's not just that we notice that their total energy expenditure is lower than we expect relative to their physical activity level, but we also see that there's testosterone suppression that is kind of happening in parallel with that. But it's not something that's impacting fertility. It's not causing clinical manifestations of low testosterone. It's just an adaptation. So the the reason that that I kind of did this whole episode chopping up these terms and showing where they overlap and where they're distinct from one another is the guy with low testosterone could just be an adaptation to endurance training, totally normal, no big deal. It could be from overtraining syndrome. That overtraining syndrome could be caused by low energy availability that's actually kind of posing as overtraining syndrome. 
Uh, you know, there's a, a paper we reviewed in Mass not too long ago, Helms did it, where they found that most of the studies documenting overtraining syndrome, a large percentage of them, you could actually argue that perhaps it was just low energy availability that was kind of uh, looking like overtraining syndrome. It was really hard to separate out where does the low energy availability, you know, how do you kind of distinguish between the two within some of these studies? Uh, and then it could just be a person who is experiencing metabolic adaptation and they're just well below their their kind of comfortable body fat level, right? It's a very common uh, reason for low testosterone among men is that they just try to get too lean and try to maintain it for too long and their testosterone drops. So there's one symptom and you could just say, oh, I'm sure you're just not eating enough relative to your training, but it is worthwhile to look into like, okay, but how much are you training? What is your energy availability like? What's your body fat level like? As you kind of go through this series of potential uh, quote unquote diagnoses, and one other thing I should mention, you could just have low testosterone because you're, you're really stressed and not sleeping much, you know? I mean, that, that could easily be sufficient for reducing your testosterone. So um, a bit of a tangent, but it, it's obviously on top of mind because we were just chatting about it uh, with, uh, with Helms and Iron Culture. But all that is to say, um, yeah, I, I think, Lauren, your, your answer was fantastic. And I think, you know, when it comes to menstrual cycle disruption, like you said, the most important thing is, the, the term that I used uh, talking with Helms is that loss of a menstrual cycle is kind of the canary in the coal mine. Like it, it's the menstrual cycle is quite reactive to relatively short term changes in, you know, stress or energy availability. Like it, it's usually your first sign, like your first sign is not going to be, oh, I've had low energy availability for decades and now I have really low bone density, right? You don't find like the stress fracture from low bone density is not your first sign. It's usually when, when there's a mismatch with training load or energy availability, the menstrual cycle is usually that canary in the coal mine, that first signal that says, hey, you should probably think about your training load relative to your energy intake. Maybe think about adjusting one or both of those and try to figure out, you know, which one is more of the culprit if it's one more than the other. Does that sound right to you? For sure. I, I think that to your point, looking at one single factor is, as opposed to the whole person and the whole scenario is, is uh, certainly not the way that I would suggest going about this and, and addressing the, the potential issue. But uh, that said, given that most people aren't going in and, and getting constant blood work done or um DEXA scans, losing your menstrual cycle is one very tangible thing to point to that then might trigger you to to go and, and dive deeper and perhaps look at, at some of these other markers. Yeah, definitely. All right, Lauren, um, I think it's about time to dive into the live chat. The first one I want to mention here. Um, so Tina Carlson, Dr. Tina Carlson mentioned that uh, her 23andMe DNA analysis. Um, Tina, don't go out committing crimes and leaving DNA evidence. You're in the database now. Uh, she took that test and said she's a, a fast caffeine metabolizer, so she must be a lucky one. Well, Tina, that brings up a point that I glossed over, maybe. So in that caffeine study, participants with faster genotypes, they were lucky with regards to sleep outcomes. They had a better time. Fast genotypes also tend to be better in terms of ergogenic effects of caffeine, although that's debatable. It's debatable, but 
um, you know, it, it's either as good or better than, than being a slow metabolizer for performance outcomes. But the drawback is the fast metabolizers did seem to have more cardiac arrhythmias in that caffeine study. So for most people, not a big deal. Like I said, these are largely benign, clinically insignificant uh, arrhythmias. But, you know, obviously anyone with a heart condition would want to take note of that and be a bit cautious. Um, now, Lauren, the chat is just blowing up with hashtags. We've got Trex Nation, Tyrannosaurus Trex. We've got Trex Mediated Hypertrophy. That's that's a new one. Trextracurricular Education. That's exactly what Office Hours is. Of course, Trextopia. That's a staple. Someone's here for the Trextra Credit, um, which they will be given. And then we've got Colenso. Where where it go? Colenso Informed. Okay. So that's that's a bit of a stretch. You should try. Okay. Yeah. And then Simple Shift. I'm not I'm not understanding yours. I'm going to be completely honest. We also have Colenso Simple Strength Sisters. Okay. Yeah, that's I, I agree of... that, you know, we we could use some work on, on uh, your your hashtags are more creative than than mine. Have but you tried having I said in the chat, I believe that these are, are bots that you've generated to hype you up. Yeah, you can do a lot with chat GPT. Um yeah. I think maybe I'm just missing some pop culture references. Whenever I don't understand something, that's always the safest bet. Because I, I kind of checked out of popular culture for a couple decades there, and I'm just now getting back in. Uh, I watched The Sopranos, uh, just finished that. So I'm basically, in terms of pop culture, I'm in 2007, and I'm, I'm catching up, gaining ground very quickly. So um, you were checked into pop culture at like age 10? Yeah, I mean, I, I was like up to date with Seinfeld my entire childhood. I didn't understand any of the jokes, but I knew when to laugh because they have the laugh track. It kind of mm-hmm. helps when it you're a kid. It doesn't get easier. Um, yeah, and then I, I went back and watched more Seinfeld when I was older. And I was like, oh God, can't believe, uh, can't believe I was exposed to this as a child. Um, all right, so let's get a couple questions in here from the chat. Uh, so Magnus asks... If someone has bad side effects from taking the recommended dose of creatine, three to five grams, would a lower dose, one to two grams, still be beneficial? And by how much? Uh, my perspective, I, I'd be curious to know what the uh, what the bad side effects are. Um, usually when people talk about side effects with creatine, they are referring to something gastrointestinal. You know, it either upsets their stomach, maybe it causes bloating or, or or diarrhea, something of that nature. So obviously that's not fun. You don't want that. So usually in, in the literature, there's two ways to get around that, and they're related. One way is to just go with a lower dose. Uh, another way is to have the same daily dose, but split it up into multiple kind of installments. So instead of having five grams in one sitting, you'd have two and a half grams in the morning, two and a half grams in the evening. So uh, one option, if if the side effect is just merely gastrointestinal discomfort, one option is to break it up into smaller doses and try to still get three to five grams a day. Um, another option is to seek out a product with a really good solubility and mix it into a warm or even hot beverage. Um, creatine is pretty stable um, for short periods of time, even in some pretty hot beverages. So I used to have like a tea kettle, an electric tea kettle, 
and I would just pour some hot water and mix my creatine in. And sometimes dissolving it better seems to help people, um, you know, alleviate some of the GI discomfort. Uh, but as for lower doses, you know, typically humans will make about a gram of creatine a day and omnivores will usually consume about a gram a day of creatine, I think roughly, depending on how much uh, meat they consume and what kind of meat they consume. Um, so, you know, one to two grams would not be a negligible supplement dose of creatine. You could even make the argument that in the long term, you know, even three grams could could effectively saturate muscle creatine stores if given enough time. You know, you kind of build it up over a longer duration. Um, so yeah, th there's nothing wrong with taking like two or three grams a day instead of taking five to seven. Um, and over time, you know, you'll, you'll probably get to a similar level of saturation. Once you've been on creatine for a while, if you're taking five, seven grams a day, at a certain point, most of that, you're just breaking down to creatinine and you're excreting, you know, you, you just, you're topped off, you have plenty. So, um, yeah, nothing wrong with going with a lower dose there. Um, Lauren, we've got one here. Let's see. Some people claim that biological women on average, uh, can do more volume than biological men and therefore they should do more volume than biological men when it comes to resistance training. So, uh, any, any truth to that? Um, if there's a difference, is it due to sex differences um, rather than just women being smaller lifters compared to men? What, what's the deal there with volume? Yeah, this evidence is really mixed. I've seen it more in the, the training frequency literature saying, oh, you know, you should, as a, as a woman, potentially be able to, to hit a muscle group more frequently, uh, potentially because if you are a smaller individual it's less sort of overall stress and so you, you won't have as much fatigue you won't have as much damage there's less joint stress arguably um and so you can kind of go go back and and, and hit that same muscle group again um i think perhaps for for newer lifters that that there there might be an argument for that and that's often why when i'm working with somebody who's really new to the gym i i would start going full body workouts and, and, you know, doing those three times a week, four times a week, whatever is tolerated before I would even consider doing some sort of a, a body part split. But I wouldn't say this is due to hormonal differences. And certainly from my experience as a coach, just looking at the uh, individual variability in, in what you can tolerate in terms of volume or frequency, that there's just uh, individuals are more different than men and women. So I think it's it's really important to do some trial and error and and track what's working for you and um, keep it keep also track of of that biofeedback of how recovered you feel and then you can learn how much you can tolerate and whether it's productive for you to be somebody who squats three times a week or whether that just destroys you and you need to be somebody who squats twice a week or even once a week. So I, I think that when it comes to this question, I would lean on the the fact that this inter-individual variability is larger between people as opposed to between one sex and the other. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, I think you nailed it. Um, you know, we, uh, were you on the study? I don't think you were on the study, but a study out of Bill's lab that I helped out with, 
we looked at sex differences for uh, fatigue, you know, and kind of, you know, reps to failure um, in a multi-set protocol. And like you said, I mean, you could argue that sex differences may have existed, maybe in this little slight way that favored women uh, in terms of, you know, how many reps they could complete before failing. Um, but it, it was very marginal. It depended on the specific exercise you're talking about. And I think that in, the individual level differences can be huge. And I'm actually a bit of an outlier in that regard. I was in a bench press study a while back and um, I felt bad because I knew that I was messing up the distribution of the data because like, I just can't do that many reps with, with a heavy load. Like um, it, it, it's really kind of surprising. I just kind of, you know, my strength uh, relative to the reps I can do, it's completely disproportionate, uh, where I can do, uh, very, very few reps where you would expect, Oh, Eric will probably get 10 here. And it's like, no, like three, maybe four. Um, so it's just really weird that way. But yeah, I think, um, you know, you, you really are better served looking at an individual's characteristics rather than, uh, kind of guessing based on their biological sex. And certainly, um, you know, trying to program from that is, is quite a leap of faith that I, I probably would not recommend unless, unless you literally knew nothing about them and just needed somewhere to start. But even then I'd say the sex difference is so minimal. I wouldn't even factor it in, to be honest. Yeah. And um, I would yeah. prefer to start more conservative and then work our way up than just beat somebody up and then have to backtrack. Yeah, definitely. Um, got a quick one here from Magnus. What would your recommendation be for skinny fat people? Now, Lauren, my big goal is to get people away from the use of the term fat as a pejorative with all these terms. So skinny fat, what we do in the nerdy clinical literature is we call that normal weight obesity, right? That's our clinical term. And then somebody a few weeks ago used the term fat, but fit. And by the way, that's how people use these terms. So I'm definitely not calling out the, the, the people asking the questions. I'm trying to initiate a movement where we use some language that's a little bit less pejorative in nature. So skinny fat, you could call normal weight obesity if you felt so inclined. That's the way you're going to see it in the literature. And the reason this is useful to bring up is if you're going to try to search for research on it, you're not going to find skinny fat in the literature, right? So it's good to know the actual term if you want to find the evidence. Um, The other one that came up was fat but fit. And uh, we, we usually, what do we call that one? I always blank on this one, but there's a, a clinical, like fancy name for that one too. Um, it's, oh yeah, metabolically healthy obesity. It is If you're going to search that in the literature, that's what you're looking for, for people who are quote unquote fat, but fit. So recommendation for skinny fat people, people with normal weight obesity. Um, usually when, when the, the context of this question is, is usually, hey, I'm, you know, quote unquote, skinny fat. I'm just getting started here. What do I do? Right. Do I bulk first? Do I cut first? Do I try to recomp? And ultimately that question, I, I think a lot of times people assume that there's a physiological answer for that. And there really isn't. I, I think the the answer all comes down to uh, an individual's goals and how we set them on a trajectory that's going to help them become a lifer with regards to fitness. What I mean by that is sometimes you'll get someone who's brand new, they've got fat to lose, they have very little muscle mass, and they say, what should I do first? And I say, well, if if you were just going to like be absolutely thrilled three months from now, is it because you have lower body fat or because you have bigger arms, right? Or legs or whatever the case may be. Like what right now is the thing that would get you most 
excited and enthusiastic and make you feel like you're really doing something and making big strides towards your goals. Sometimes people say, well, I really want to have visible abs before I do anything else. Fine. We can cut first. No big deal. Um, some folks will say, I just really wish I could bench press two plates and, and then I'll worry about losing some belly fat. Cool. Let, let's focus entirely on getting big and strong. Doesn't mean we have to do a you know thousand calorie a day surplus, but we're not going to worry about trying to lose fat while we're doing this. We'll keep a similar amount of body fat and just get big and strong. Now, sometimes you'll find someone who they really insist they want to make progress in both directions at the same time, and they can most likely, right? And so that's fine. You put them in a very modest caloric deficit, start hitting the weights, plenty of protein. And this is like a perfect example for someone who is in a good position to recomp, which means building muscle while losing fat at the same time. So for someone who is, you know, skinny fat, I mean, all three roads are viable. And I think it really comes down to how do we foster this enthusiasm? You know, if you think about the uh, stages of change model, the trans theoretical model, You've got someone who's worked all the way up, you know, past pre-contemplation, past contemplation. They're actually ready to make this change and engage in this health-promoting behavior. Uh, the the last thing you want to do is sabotage that enthusiasm by saying, I know that you want to have your dessert, but first have some mushy peas. No, like go toward the thing that right now is fueling that enthusiasm and build off of that, right? So if you're really stoked about getting big and strong, get big and strong and the success of that and the confidence that it brings will build self-efficacy so that when you decide it's time to do a fat loss phase, you've already had so many wins. I mean, you're, you're, you're loving fitness, you're completely hooked, and, and you're on a, a good long-term trajectory. Um, Lauren, do you see one in the chat that you feel enthusiastic about, uh, about grabbing here? Let's see. I noticed Karina said it's ladies night, Jim bros. Um, it is ladies night relative to the other mass casts or, uh, well, we got there. Colexo collective. So that's, Oh, that, that's a good one. I like that one. Yeah. So we can, we can go with that. Um, uh, more, more trucks, hashtags. It's these- going to happen. going to happen. Uh, I'll, I'll do one from Steven here while you're looking. Um, so Steven says, with a given weight, I find I can do a lot more reps utilizing cluster sets compared to straight sets. Uh, given this, is there a reason to believe cluster sets would not lead to greater hypertrophy? Um, you know, ultimately, it, it kind of, I, I wouldn't say that cluster sets across the board are better for hypertrophy than just regular straight sets. Um, I think at a certain point there's going to be trade-offs in terms of, you know, your, your performance in those sets and the overall volume load that you're completing. Um, when I think about cluster sets and I think about similar strategies like, uh, rest redistribution. Can um, we define cluster sets for the listener? Yeah. Cluster. So cluster sets is, um, I'd actually have to look up Helms or, uh, Zordos is like super technical definition, but, um, you know, clusters, like I like to do rest redistribution sets. And so that's where I'm basically, you know, doing a few reps, resting a little bit, doing a few more. I'm not quite going to failure with them, but I'm just kind of, instead of doing like 12 reps and then resting for two minutes and doing 12 more, I'll do like four or five, you know, I'll, I'll start feeling it a little bit. I'll chill for, you know, 20, 30 seconds, do another four or five. 
So you basically just like jam your three sets of this exercise into this big continuous stop and start kind of, uh, you know, it's why they call it rest redistribution. You're redistributing your rest periods kind of interspersed within these sets. Um, cluster sets, you have a good definition pulled up. Cause I, I was, I was mix up, you know, the cluster sets and the, all the similar, um, strategies that fall under that umbrella. Yeah, I, I think you the, the your example is probably how we would define it. And I, I, I want to say that myo reps is sort of synonymous with that as well. Uh, yeah. if, if people have have used that terminology, but uh, it, yeah, you know, it's essentially you're kind of extending the the overall set on uh, and arguably, it's more time efficient because you can get more more work done, but you're you're not re, you're not distributing the work in a way that's necessarily as measurable from one workout to the next. I feel like that's the the major potential downside is it's harder to to really say did I did I do this exactly the same as last time? Because if we're talking, oh, like I'm resting for a, a few seconds, like what is a few seconds? Are you timing it that diligently? <laughs> yeah. And if you add a rep within a cluster, it, is it the second cluster? And then how do you how do you progress that? I mean, I I just feel like it's a it's not as cut and dry as just trying to uh, do three sets and then next week add some load or add one rep per set. Yeah. Yeah. I think you know the two things I was going to talk about basically, which is that number one, um, when you're using these, this kind of genre of strategy, whether you're talking about cluster sets or myo reps or rest redistribution sets, um, they can be very time efficient. That's one of the reasons I like to use them. Um, they also can be something, if, if you're like me, I kind of get bored in the gym. I, I don't like sitting around for two or three minutes and, you know, trying to keep my mind busy. So I, I kind of like, um, just subjectively, I enjoy that kind of training more. So, um, there are reasons to do it, but the progression scheme, especially when you start zooming out over the long term, like you're saying, it becomes a little bit more convoluted in terms of how you progress it. Um, especially if you're not being super meticulous and doing an exact predetermined number of repetitions, looking at your watch, waiting for that 20 second rest period, then doing, you know, so like a cluster set, you know, I'm looking at an example from one of Zordos's articles, talks about doing two reps with a load, um, focusing on maximum power output, resting 20 seconds, doing two more reps, resting 20 seconds, continuing to do that um, until you reach a certain velocity loss or, you know, proximity to failure. But, you know, whether you're talking about myo reps or cluster sets or rest redistribution, um, it, it all kind of falls under a similar paradigm. And, and Zordos would be the person to ask for kind of uh, sorting out the the particular differences between each strategy. But all of that is to say, you know, these strategies in the literature are viable approaches to training. Um, they seem to be, when done well, when programmed effectively, they seem to be just as effective as, as doing straight sets as long as you're, you know, doing adequate amounts of total, uh, you know, volume load uh, over time. But um, I would not say that necessarily someone is going to have better training outcomes because they ditch straight sets and start doing this kind of genre of training styles, whether it's cluster sets, myo reps, um, 
or or rest redistribution. But I will say, like, I'm I'm not knocking any of those strategies because I actually enjoy them quite a lot. I'm just saying that you know it, it's it's a way of rearranging training, but it's not a way of like hacking your training to make it dramatically more effective than straight sets. Um, so, Lauren, did you have anything else uh, in the chat that you wanted to hit? Uh, objectively and scientifically, which exercise machine do you have the best vibes about? It's mm. a good question. Hmm. The I, best vibes. I really like the um, the seated chest fly. Um, wonderful, like the cable one. It's just this incredible stretch on your pecs. Um, you can't beat it. You know, you cannot you cannot replicate it using dumbbells. It, it's a completely different kind of stretch. The angle is just perfect. So I'm very partial to that one. Um, and I'm also very partial to, um, I don't know if this counts as a machine, but right now I'm using the belt squat a lot. Um, and I'm actually using it for like a deadlift variation. It's like the only thing I can do that's not bothering my my nerve pain that I'm dealing with. So uh, it's been a lifesaver for my lower body training. Um, yeah, what about you? I love a cable. Uh, so any machine that incorporates a cable, I I get good vibes. I've also tried, have you tried these hoist machines? They kind of move with you. It looks yeah. gimmicky, but yeah. um, some of those are pretty good. Because I like, yeah. I like their bicep curl. They have curl. kind of adjustable, um, you know, in terms of how much internal external rotation you're getting, and the the ability to move with it feels like it's more adaptable, especially for people of different heights and limb lengths as well. Yeah, yeah. the The bicep curl machine I use is by Hoist, and I, I actually like it very much. Um, I agree with you. The first time I saw it, I was like, "Oh, that's so gimmicky. That's very stupid." But it's actually pretty great. Uh, another one. Um, uh, on the outside looking in, an honorable mention here, uh, the seated dip machine, uh, the, the one that's more like the, the plate stack, not, not the big bulky one that you see in the old school hammer strength gyms, but the seated dip machine, uh, that that's like a plate loaded one with a plate stack. That one is pretty smooth. A really, really good, uh, tricep stimulus from that. So you're pushing down, you're sitting in a chair and you're just pushing down. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's clutch. Uh, there's always a line for that one. It's always when I go to the gym in the morning before work. It's always like me and a bunch of like 72 year old men that are like lining up for that machine. Um, I don't know what that says about me, but it is what it is. Uh, and that that machine is very smooth. I love that one. But Lauren, that was a good a good time to ask that question because you and I are both we're machine people. We love machines. Um, we know our way around a barbell too. But man, machines are don't sleep on machines. They, they are very much underrated in the modern fitness industry. Back in the 80s... I love the lateral raise machine. You just can't replicate a lateral oh, raise. Oh, yeah. Like, that, that you can... I mean, lateral raise with dumbbells is garbage compared to a machine. Yeah, I love a good lateral raise. And that reminds me, uh, lat pullover machine back in the mm -hmm. day, the old hammer strength one, you don't see those much anymore. Um, no, that, that was a, a relic of the eighties and nineties. That that's when Dorian Yates was kind of, you know, calling the shots, but, um, that, that's another smooth one. I gotta be honest, Lauren, I, I shop at Costco for everything, my food, my clothing, you name it. And I was in there the other day and I saw a, what appeared to be a 
pretty legit looking um like all-in-one cable setup so it was like the two cables next to each other you could do like cable crossovers and you could set up with a bar and you do like a bench press variation and I didn't give it a lot of consideration but the thought crossed my mind and I was like I might be reckless today and spend money that I shouldn't spend I didn't do it because I I really enjoy going to the gym you know like Mm -hmm. I, I enjoy the act of getting out of where I work or out of my home and going and being at the gym so I've never been one to like build up a home gym, but eh, I was so close. I, I was looking at it and my eyes were getting big and I, I was thinking about the the other version of my future where that was in my office and it would have been it would have been glorious, but maybe someday. I don't know. But yeah. You need folks, a big truck to move that. I don't know. I've got a I, I drive a RAV four and that thing is handles everything I throw at it. it it's incredible. Mm-hmm. I can fit my whole kayak in it. I don't even have to use the rack. I can just slide it right in. It's incredible. So anyway, no one needs to know about that. Um, let's see here. John Bryan asked, love the information. Appreciate that, John. What's our opinion on dieting with a minor injury that prevents training a muscle group? Uh, I have mixed, uh, mixed emotions about that. Um, you know, I think on the one hand, you know, having a minor injury that's just preventing the training of, of a single muscle group, if you really are focused on getting bigger and stronger and it's it's a minor injury for, you know, kind of a non-priority muscle group or, or you can put it on the back burner, you can keep doing, keep doing your thing and train around it. Um, obviously, you want to do that with uh, an intelligent approach. You want to make sure that you're truly training around it rather than training through it. You don't want to do any uh, additional harm there, but um, yeah, I, I, I can te- I can definitely see the perspective where you'd say, okay, so I've got a little tricep strain going on. Doesn't mean I can't grow my lats. Doesn't mean I can't focus on my legs for a little bit. So you could just keep on pushing and doing your thing. Um, on the flip side, I definitely could see um, someone say, hey, you know, I'm not bringing my best for the super hard, you know, heavy training. So maybe I'll, I'll focus on losing some fat. You know, if I if I'm not going to be optimizing my my training for bulking, maybe I'll just kind of try to hold steady with my training and just focus on creating a caloric deficit and leaning out a little bit. I think it all ultimately depends on where you're at and where you're trying to go. I know that's not a very satisfactory answer, but it's kind of what it is. You know, you want to make sure, you know, if you knew that you had a cut coming down the line pretty soon and you've got this injury that's a setback, it's kind of hampering your training a little bit or hindering your training a little bit. Sure, maybe you decide to go ahead and, and do that cut a little bit early. You just want to make sure if you're going to take this strategy um, that you're doing what you can to maintain the muscle mass that you've already built, right? So um, ways that you can do that when you're training around a little injury, depending on the nature of the injury, you could try blood flow restriction. Um, blood flow restriction training is a you know a, a valid uh, form of training with plenty of evidence behind it where you can get away with training with much lower loads, but still have a, quite a robust stimulus for uh, for muscle growth or retention. Uh, another thing that you could try to capitalize on is the, um, you know, it, it's really interesting, the cross-education effect, you know, the contralateral training adaptations that come with lifting. Um, I was just uh, very recently, uh, like last week, I was at a conference in Orlando, uh, and there was a great presentation by Dr. J.C. Carr, who's down at Texas Christian University, 
um, and, and he's doing some some really fascinating work on cross education. Basically, meaning you know if your left arm is you know your left bicep is hurt and you can't do curls, uh, there is some advantage for that injured bicep of doing bicep curls on the other side. Um, it, it's a really fascinating kind of neural phenomenon, but uh, but you know chatting with him over a beer at the conference, he, you know he was. Uh, really getting me convinced that there's a little bit more to it than we've previously thought. Um, and, and perhaps there's even some some effects on the re- retention of lean mass as well, uh, which would be a really fascinating finding. So very preliminary stuff. But all of that is to say, um, you know, if you're trying to, you know, shift gears and focus on cutting, you know, because of this injury, you want to do what you can in order to, um, in order to maintain the, the muscle and strength that you've built up. So, uh, the unimpacted muscle groups, you know, train them as, as you normally would. Make sure that you're, you're keeping plenty of intensity in the mix there. Um, you know, usually when you're just trying to maintain muscle mass and strength, you can often get away with dropping some volume as long as you maintain intensity. So you might consider doing that. Um, when it comes to the impacted limb or muscle group, you might try to, you know, capitalize on cross-education by training the other side uh, in a unilateral fashion. Or you might try some blood flow restriction to to do your best with it. Uh, Lauren, anything to add to that one? Just that typically, it, if one muscle group is a problem, it, it, others around it might be, and so it's important to to keep in mind that you know when you're doing an, a, a shoulder exercise that you might be irritating your injured pec, for example, um, or if you have some elbow stuff going on, bicep and tricep and forearm work might all be impacted. So uh, you just be aware of, of what the, the issue is, um, how long it's going to take to heal. And if you need complete rest, or if you can do some of, of those strategies that you're suggesting, because one thing with the, the cross-education stuff is from from my limited knowledge is when you're totally immobilized on the other side, it doesn't really work. So that's why when we see a single leg immobilization trials, there is such a huge difference between the, the fully immobilized limb, despite the fact that the other one is resistance training. Uh, however, if it's a situation where you can still be mobile and you can still be fairly active and you just can't, you know, do the leg press or the leg extension, then there's, there's certainly potential value there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I tell you what, I saw another question in the comments here about, uh, cluster sets. So here's what I want to do. I want to leave the good people with a cliffhanger here. Um, Mike Zordos is our resident expert. He writes all of our articles about, uh, rest pause sets, cluster sets, uh, rest redistribution sets. Um, you know, Mike is our person when it comes myo reps, right? So I believe if memory serves that Mike is going to be on the show next week, it's going to be our, our Valentine's day special. Uh, so if you have a date for Valentine's day, um, I would recommend putting on mass office hours. You know, it's something that you, you can enjoy. Um, that could be a very romantic evening in, in its own way. So, uh, next week when Mike is on the show, we are going to start with just a big recap of all these different terms, how they fit together and how you might use them. So everyone who's asking questions tonight about these various, um, types of training approaches, 
Uh, the cliffhanger is we will allocate and dedicate a great deal of focus toward them next week because if you haven't noticed by now with mass office hours, every member of the mass team, you know, we all have our own little specialty, right? Uh, Helms is is our bodybuilding guy, but he wears a lot of different hats in, in the team. Uh, we, we all wear a few different hats, but, you know, Lauren, I always try to make sure you're around when we get some of these questions about uh, female physiology, sex-based differences. It's an area of research where you specialize. Um, I try to handle a lot of the nutrition metabolism stuff. When it comes to, you know, these, these uh, training techniques that we're getting a lot of questions about tonight, Mike is our go-to guy. So uh, he's on the show next week. We're going to do uh, a deep dive into those topics. And if you're saying, hey, I'm not going to be around next week because of Valentine's Day, you know, maybe I'm going out to dinner. Don't worry about it. We do these live on YouTube, but you can listen to the replay on YouTube anytime. And then after the fact, of course, we put it up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, every platform that you'd want to get a podcast from. So uh, folks in the chat, uh, that will be waiting for you next week. And uh, simply put, Mike Zordos can do that topic justice far better than I can. And tonight, we're just out of time, Lauren. So uh, Lauren, is there anything you want to say to the good people before we sign off here? Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Colenso Sem- Semple Collective, was that it? Hashtag? Yep. Yeah, a lot of good hashtags tonight. Keep it up, folks. One last thing I'll mention, we, we still have more viewers than likes, which is really troubling. So on your way out, uh, rather than dropping a dollar in the hat, all we ask is that you hit the thumbs up, give us a nice little like there, uh, let the algorithm treat us, uh, give us the love that we deserve, basically, uh, when it comes to the algorithm. So we want to make sure that uh, people are spreading the love so that we can share office hours with more people. So spread the word, spread the links, like, rate, subscribe, all that other stuff. As always, everyone in the chat, thank you so much for joining us live. That is the best way, the uh, preferred method for viewing this show. Uh, Everyone who's listening after the fact, we still love you too. Thank you for the support, and we will be back with another episode of Office Hours in exactly one week.